Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are Ahead of the Sweet 16, the moments and results that have been the most surprising in the men's bracket. Plus, resetting the NFL after the litany of trades and signings that stunned the football world. And, did Carlos Correa make the right choice in his free agency decision? It's episode 66 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Everybody, once again, here on Thursday, March 24th, 2022, the 66th episode of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. I want to wish everyone a belated happy St. Patrick's Day. Hope everyone had a great time, had a lot of fun celebrating the holiday. I know, at least here in the Swamp Scout area, there was nothing much going on, but I was able to head to South Boston for the traditional or what used to be a tradition, but now it's back the uh, St. Patrick's uh, parade in South Boston. I was able to uh, check it out at uh, my other job uh, down alongside West Broadway. And it was pretty surreal. It's amazing. You know, you can really start to wonder why there are so many uh, numbers of people, why there are such huge crowds, not only just for that one day for parade Sunday, but, the entire holiday starting from that Thursday up through Sunday. So it was a little crazy, uh, a little chaotic, but it was two years in the making. Um, first parade since 2019 and uh, just had a tremendous time. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a great, it was a great celebration to uh, see the parade and to see the mayor, the bagpipes, a couple bands. Uh, it was pretty cool to see that for the very first time. Uh, I hope to, you know, continue that tradition. And if you're not in the Swamp Scott area or not in the Southeast, South Boston area, I do recommend getting out there. You know, it's definitely a bucket list thing to check out the parade because it was a little bit of a shorter route than normal uh, for this year. But obviously that's with the uh, return after the pandemic. Hopefully by next year, 2023 will be the regular route. But March is not only for St. Patrick's Day, it's for March Madness and the college, the men's college basketball tournament has been living up to everything that expected. I mean, I talked about that this was the year of parody, there'd be upsets galore. And sure enough, you know, just looking at my bracket real quick, there have been a lot of upsets. I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with myself to pick a couple of upsets to see, um, uh, some teams like I knew New Mexico State. I picked New Mexico State to be UConn 12 over five. I got that one right. Um, let's see, just looking else here. Um, was able to correctly pick uh, Murray State, uh, Creighton, TCU, Houston, just a little, uh, some small stuff going on. But outside of the bracket, you know, there have just been moments in general during this tournament that have been surreal absolutely surreal and I think the biggest moment and surprise has to be St. Peter's making it all the way 
to the Sweet 16. I mean, there have only been a handful of 15 seeds to make the Sweet 16. And look at this little school here, knocking off the big monster, some national championship uh, predictions in Kentucky. Um, able to knock them off in OT and then go to the round of 32 and knock off Murray State. But I was able to watch uh, a little bit of that game and then got to check out the highlights afterwards. And the Peacocks and the Wildcats, that was a thriller going all the way to overtime. I mean, there was about two and a half minutes left in regulation, down eight. And the way St. Peter's was able to come back and stifle uh, Kentucky was incredible. And really throughout the whole game, it kind of just looked like uh, Kentucky was lost on defense. You know, I thought St. Peter's did a great job with their off the ball movement, you know, keeping the paint clear, opening the door for a lot of uh, backdoor cuts, which they were able to capitalize on. So I just thought, I thought Kentucky didn't have their greatest game defensively just because they looked lost with all the ball movement, uh, the weave at the, the top of the key, just, they, they just looked a little lost and a little confused. I thought they would have been able to, uh, pick up the I, th- I thought they would have been able to make the adjustments you know the later the game got but St. Peter's is just they got the heart of a line heart of a line and they've you know there are two players on that roster that I'm really circling right now the first one is Casey Casey Nadefo I thought he's huge right now in the center spot especially in the next round game against Murray State 17 points 10 rebounds but six blocks six blocks that's going to be very crucial for St. Peter's if they want to continue to go far is Nadefo being that presence down low at the center spot and just block after block after block. It's going to be a little tough because they do have Purdue and Purdue's a really good team. I, I just think if they're going to win, it's going to be because of Nadefo playing strong defensively down low. Um, if he's able to replicate the numbers, not only having the double double, but then the six blocks, you know, maybe not six blocks, but somewhere around there, maybe like three or four, something like that. That'd be huge in the game against Purdue. But of course, everyone's talking about Doug Eddard. Eddard is everyone's hero. I mean, that game against Kentucky with clutch shot after clutch shot. I mean, come on. In back-to-back games, he's got 20 points on five of seven shooting and 13 points on four or six shooting coming off the bench. And I kind of compare it to how Alex Caruso was able to get so famous during his time with the Lakers, as he just looks like a guy who shouldn't be a top basketball player. And then he just comes out and shocks everyone, everyone with the way he plays, the way he was able to shoot and just living for the big moments. I think that's what's turned Eddard into everyone's hero. And I think, you know, he's just going to continue on his legacy if, uh, the Peacocks are able to go further and further into the tournament. So I will say it's pretty surreal to see St. Peter's a 15 team, 15 seed making it uh, this far. And they just, they're a very likable squad. It's a, a small school rising up to the big giant in Kentucky and John Calipari and then knocking off Murray state in a, a strong fashion. So You know, I think everyone will be rooting for St. Peter's. I don't know if they're going to go as far, you know, into the Elite Eight or the Final Four, but it's just been great to watch. You know, they are the they are this year's Cinderella. They are this year's Cinderella team. But another thing I wasn't quite expecting was Michigan. I didn't think Michigan for the way their season ended with Juwan Howard being suspended and then going out early 
in the Big Ten tournament. I didn't expect them to rebound and get into the Sweet 16. It's just been a lost year. I, I kind of had a feeling I, I was going 50-50 on, you know, just looking at the bracket real quick to pick uh, either Colorado State or Michigan. I just thought Michigan had, you know, just too many downhill spirals, um, you know, late in the season. Um, I just didn't, th- I didn't think at the minimum they would have gotten past Tennessee. You know, I think that that would have been for me, but they've looked strong in both of those games, beating the number six team and the number three seed. And I think there's one player to really look out and that's Hunter Dickinson. If you remember uh, Michigan made it all the way to, I believe it was the elite eight last year. And Dickinson just has the experience from last year's run and the way he plays for the Wolverines, the ability to stretch the floor. He can shoot it from outside. He can score on the post. He can get in the paint. I mean, in that game against Tennessee, 27 points, 11 rebounds, four assists. First, the volunteers. I think, you know, if any team is going to try and beat Michigan, they're going to have to contain that big center uh, wearing the number one for Michigan. I think Dickinson has been the ultimate X factor for how the Wolverines have been able to play. And, you know, it will be tough to, to play against Villanova. You know, what Villanova is always a very strong team, but I do think uh, if we see the kind of game from uh, Michigan that we saw in the first two rounds, I think they maybe even have a chance to knock off um, a top team like an Arizona or a Houston if they get into the Elite Eight. I think if they just put it all together and if Jawan Howard is able to motivate his guys enough. But I was not expecting Michigan to go as far as they have just because of the way the season ended. But props to the Wolverines in that uh, Big Ten school for uh, representing the Big Ten strong. But then the final team I think that shocked me, or I should say the the game that shocked me the most, was probably Baylor and North Carolina. Now, I did have in this bracket I'm looking at uh, when I filled it out last week, North Carolina knocking off Baylor, but I didn't think it was going to happen the way it did. I mean, they had a the Tar Heels had a huge lead on the Bears, okay? They were up 25 with about 10 minutes to go in regulation. Baylor forces overtime, and then they were able to pull away and uh, beat the defending champs. And part of me just looks at Baylor and that team. I just think they were too heavy on the three-point shooting, just looking at the highlights in some of that game. They were just they were leaning too much on the three-point shot. They were 9 of 37 and only shot 24% from uh, three. And when you look at how they shot from the field, they were 28 of 81 and only shot almost uh, 35%. From the field. So I think, you know, credit is to uh, North Carolina's defense, the way uh, the Tar Heels were able to rebound like that. But to see them as an eight seed, to look as dominant as they are, I thought they were a little underseeded. I thought they definitely should have been maybe a five or a six, maybe not an eight, uh, just to see the way that they were able to perform and just stepping up in a big time. You know, I think it does concern me that. They did lose a 25-point lead, and now they've got to play, you know, UCLA, Purdue, and or St. Peter's. Um, So I don't think those performances are going to get them far enough, you know, if they continue to go far away. I think that coaching staff is going to sit down with this team and say, listen, that 25-point lead, you got lucky. You got very, very lucky. That happens again. Those teams are going to make you pay because not everyone is going to shoot as bad. Uh, early on as Baylor did they're gonna 
they're not going to have really bad halves. There are going to be adjustments made. As you saw, Baylor able to come back, force it to overtime. But just the way the offense looks, um, scoring uh, from the outside, hitting their shots, and then able to lock down Baylor and deny them from three, I thought very impressive by North Carolina. But I think so far that has to be the game of the, the tournament so far is to see Baylor almost pull off a huge comeback and then to win it in overtime. I think whatever result could have happened from that game, I thought it was the game of the tournament. But before we sign off on this segment, um, just quick predictions on the final four. Right now, I still have in my bracket that I'm looking at in front of me, I still got three of my four teams available. Gonzaga, Arizona, and Purdue are still there. Now, just looking at the matchups really, really quick. Right now, it would be Gonzaga and Arkansas, Texas Tech and Duke, North Carolina, UCLA, Purdue and St. Peter's. And then on the other side, Arizona, Houston, uh, Michigan, Villanova, Kansas, Providence, and then Iowa State and uh, Miami. So I think just really quickly, um, final four predictions. I think I'm going to I'm gonna stick with Gonzaga and Arizona. I think those two teams are going to make it. Um, I do think the, the way the East has shaped, I think Purdue, they've shown glimpses of it. If they can get past, I think it's going to be a blowout against St. Peter's. I think, again, it's been a great run, but I don't think they're going to make it that far. I think Purdue, they get past uh, UCLA. I think they get themselves into the Final Four. And then it, this one's a tricky one. I think it's going to be either the winner of Kansas or Providence. And I just think, you know, Providence, shout out to uh, the Provost family, Emmy and Aaron. Um, I just think they're, they're a small school, and there's always that small school, someone you don't expect to get into the Final Four. I thought it was going to be Kansas, but I, you know, I just scratched it out real quick. I had Iowa there. But obviously they lost in the very first game. Um, but I just think I think Providence rises up. I think they beat Kansas. And then, you know, when they whenever they play Iowa State or Miami, I, I think I think they're going to beat them. I think there's somehow some way the Friars are going to get themselves into the final four. But I think that's where they're going to stick. But we'll see what happens when we get into the final four. And the good thing, you know, is that they call it March Madness because it is truly living up to the hype. Now, it's hard for anything to rival March Madness right now in terms of the news, but I think the NFL has maybe even leapfrogged it with the amount of movement that is going on. It is literally insane right now in the NFL offseason, and we haven't even hit the draft. There's been crazy signings, crazy trades, huge extensions. It is insane what is going on right now. And, of course, it only gets amplified with the big trade yesterday between the Dolphins and the Chiefs. Kansas City giving up possibly its biggest weapon in history in Tyreek Hill. They trade him to the Dolphins for five picks, five picks. And these are really good picks. These are uh, two, I think a first rounder and a second rounder that are both in the top 50. Then next year to uh, a first round, a second round, and then a third round. But not only that, but the Dolphins also were able to sign Tyreek Hill 
to a four-year, $120 million extension with $72 million guaranteed. Now, the money is insane, which is a conversation in itself. But the move itself, I never would have thought, never would have thought that the Chiefs would give up any of their big three. And by big three, I mean Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, and Tyree Kill. Never thought that would have happened. And you look at where the AFC is at right now. You know, Kansas City was one game away from the Super Bowl. They've hosted the AFC Championship four years in a row. And it blows my mind why Kansas City wouldn't want to just stick it out with a guy like Tyree Kill, a guy who's got who's maybe the fastest player in the NFL, the way he's able to get separation down the field and even on short passes, just outrun everybody. I don't know why they wouldn't want to commit. I don't know if it's because he's 28 years old and they're maybe looking at metrics saying that, you know, this is when receivers sort of take a dip a little bit. I don't know if they're looking at it like that, but now, you know, even though he's made six Pro Bowls, look at what Miami has added along with that. They have retooled their whole offense. I mean, you already have Jalen Waddle, Devontae Parker, Mike Gesicki as huge, huge weapons on offense. But then you bring in two great running backs in Chase Edmonds, Raheem Mostert. You get uh, Tyreek Hill to go along with all those guys, plus Cedric Wilson from the Cowboys. And then you get maybe the best offensive lineman out there on the market, sign him from the Saints. Taron Armstead. I mean, this offense is insane right now for Miami and their defense is just as good, but I think all the success is going to rely on Tua Tagovailoa. I think it's going to be that and the consistency because this was a team that was eliminated within the last two weeks of the regular season. And it was only because they started one and seven. So it's going to be consistency, which is number one. And number two is how, is Tua going to play at quarterback? We've seen him the first two years of his career with Miami. He's been a little inconsistent, and he's been off the mark. Year three, you got to hope he takes a big leap forward because he's got weapons galore. And I think there's no more there's no more reasons as to why you know Tua shouldn't struggle. He's got all the pieces there, and if he does struggle and Miami ends up, you know, missing the playoffs or worse, a sub 500 record, then I think the, the Nate, the, uh, the little birdies are going to start, start talking, saying, Hey, maybe two is not the guy. And you got to start, you know, maybe revisiting, you know, maybe trading him or Deshaun Watson, or maybe you got to go back um, into the draft, uh, something like that. But I think that's where it starts and ends with Miami is Tua Tagovailoa and the way he plays and gets all of these weapons incorporated. But just quickly back on Kansas City, I now that they lost Tyreek Hill, I don't think they're automatic favorites anymore. You know, when you look at a team like Kansas City, if you've got, you know, a top three quarterback in Patrick Mahomes, a top three wide receiver in Tyreek Hill, and a top two tight end in Travis Kelsey, you think if you're on the other side of the football, that is a scary, you know, big three to go up against. Now that one of them is gone, I can't say they're the automatic favorites anymore. I think also because the AFC has been so wide open, not only last year, but just looking at the moves, everyone's getting better, including teams within their own division. I can't even say that they're the favorites 
you know, for the Super Bowl. I can't say that they're automatic favors. I don't think Juju Smith-Schuster is a guy to replace Tyreek Hill. I don't think Byron Pringle, Miko Hardman, I don't think any of them are able to replace what Tyreek Hill can do. And now the question is going to become how well does Patrick Mahomes play without a game-altering weapon? All he's got now in terms of game-altering is Travis Kelsey. You know, you don't have anyone else that's really a big difference maker. So I really want to see what Kansas City does for the rest of this offseason and heading into camp, how they're able to replace a guy as incredible as Tyree Kill. And I would have said, you know, that's probably the biggest move that's happened in the offseason so far. I'll put that over everything else. I would say the shocking move has to be Deshaun Watson. Of course, everyone, you know, last week, when you saw that he wasn't going to get criminally charged, everyone's saying, oh, he's up for grabs. And apparently he was up for grabs, and he's now got a new team, and that's the Cleveland Browns. They gave up three first-round picks over the next three years for Deshaun Watson and then made him the highest-paid player in NFL history. Five years, $230 million guaranteed on the extension. Now, I think in for Cleveland, number one, they should be absolutely ashamed of how they've treated Baker Mayfield. I mean, this was a guy who had one bad year, okay? One bad year after taking this team to the Super Bowl or uh, to the playoffs, excuse me, and to a winning record for the first time in a long time. And now everyone's saying, oh, he's not good anymore. He's just like every other Cleveland quarterback, okay? Baker Mayfield's better than any Cleveland quarterback in the last 20 years. And you want to say you want to kick him to the curb for a guy who hasn't played competitive football in over a year and is probably going to be suspended because his civil lawsuits are still there. What a stupid move. Okay. They had no transparency in committing to Baker Mayfield as a quarterback. And I'm kind of glad that he's going to find himself on another team. And I think there are still teams that could use a quarterback like Baker Mayfield. I know the Seahawks are looking for someone. The Panthers are looking for someone, maybe even the Steelers within the division. I think Baker Mayfield needs a fresh start. We've already heard that he's uh, requesting a trade, and I think he'll be better off not in Cleveland. But for the move itself, for the Browns, to give that much to Deshaun Watson, because as I said, you know, even though he's still got those civil lawsuits, he's probably going to be suspended. The length of time, we have no idea. He hasn't played competitive football in over a year, so we don't know what he's going to look like, if he's going to look, anything like himself because when he's on the field when he's on the field he's one of the top quarterbacks in this league the way he's able to throw the ball down the field and escape pressure he's one of the best you know probably top 10 top 15 but just the situation that's going on I understand they got a lot of weapons you know they brought in Amari Cooper they still have the two great running backs in Chubb and Hunt I just don't I don't see I don't see anything working out until I see it on the field. You know, it's just a lot of unknowns for Deshaun Watson. If he's suspended for six games, you know, that's it's hard to say that they can get to the top of the AFC North if Deshaun Watson is suspended for that long time. Now, the and because the division is so tough, you got the defending AFC champions and the Bengals. You got the Ravens who are going to get better and the Steelers, who made the playoffs last year. It's a tough division, um, you know, in, ter- in terms of the, the style of play on paper, Cleveland looks great on offense. 
but I just, I don't know how Cleveland is going to turn things around. It does. It keeps them afloat. It keeps them afloat in terms of a playoff contender. You know, the AFC is so wide open and I think just them, you know, uh, making these moves, I think does keep them afloat, but we'll just have to see when training camp and the season gets underway. And also just finding out about those civil cases with uh, Deshaun Watson. Does he get suspended? Does he not get suspended? Will he be sued or not? That's something to really keep your eyes out on. But another quarterback that's on the move is Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan spends, you know, over 12 years in Atlanta. The Falcons trade their franchise quarterback now to the Colts for a third round pick. Now, on Indy's side of things, I think this moves the needle slightly. Not a ton, but slightly. Because I just think Matt Ryan, you know, he's he's a likable guy. You know, I think he is a better option than Carson Wentz. But he just hasn't been the same guy since the Falcons made the Super Bowl and he won that MVP. You know, he's only had one season with a re- winning record since then. And his total record is 35 and 46. And you also got to keep in mind the Colts. This is like their fifth different quarterback that'll start on opening day in a row. You know, I think it was like, uh, Luck, Tolzien, Brissett, Rivers, Wentz, and now Matty Ice. You know, I, I'll root for Matty Ice, but I, similar to Cleveland, I think this moves the needle slightly. You know, I'm, it, you, when you put Matt Ryan in the discussion, you know, if you, if you sub him for Carson Wentz in that last game against Jacksonville, you know, do they win that game? Do they get themselves in the playoffs? I would say yes. I would say yes. Matt Ryan is a better option. I think he's got a lot more pieces offensively in Indy than he does in Atlanta. But I just think in terms of, you know, going for a Super Bowl or challenging the Titans for the division, I don't think they're there just yet. I think, you know, if the if the needle is right now sitting at like a five or a six right now for the Colts, that, you know, goes up to like six and a half or seven. That's how far I think it goes. Uh, But again, another quarterback on the move. I don't know if Matt Ryan will have a career resurgence like uh, Tom Brady in Tampa or Matt Stafford in LA, maybe even Russell Wilson this year in Denver. Uh, We'll just, again, another wait and see to see how Matt Ryan incorporates with this new team. But the last big move that I want to talk about that's happened over the last week actually happened as we were recording. And that was Devontae Adams. Of course, Devontae Adams was not going to play under the franchise tag. Everybody knew that, but apparently it was more than that. As Adams gets traded to the Raiders and he gets signed to a five-year extension for $142.5 million, including $67.5 million guaranteed. I never, similar to Tyreek Hill, I never would have thought Devontae Adams would have been traded. I thought Green Bay would have been better to just let him walk. And you have to think about where is Aaron Rodgers' mindset at? This was a guy who committed to staying with the Packers. He said, I will stay with the Packers. And reports are coming out that maybe he knew that Adams was gone. Maybe he didn't know. That's still up in the air. But, you know, for the NFC, at least for Aaron Rodgers' side of thing, the good news is the NFC isn't anywhere close to the AFC. So there's still a chance uh, that the Packers could make some noise. And of course, you're never going to count Aaron Rodgers out, you know, especially with the weapons that they have. But to see the Raiders get as good as they have 
seeing what Josh McDaniels and Brad Ziegler have done coming into Vegas and putting the Raiders up there now with the Chiefs, with the Chargers, and with the Broncos. I mean, not only Adams, but you get Chandler Jones. I think the Raiders have won the offseason for getting Adams. Putting him and Derek Carr up, this is all going to be now on Derek Carr. How well does he play when he's got all the weapons around him? Because essentially, he was one quarter away from not making the playoffs, and everyone's saying, oh, that's trade bait right there. It's time to let him go. But sure enough, the Raiders get into the playoffs, and they were an interception, you know, maybe 10 yards away from getting uh, one round past the wild card. So how does Derek Carr do? Similar to uh, Tua in Miami, there's no more excuses, no more reasons as to why this team uh, doesn't perform uh, up to expectations. So I want to see how incorporated Devontae Adams is because now Derek Carr has the number one target. He's got Devontae Adams. And he's also got Darren Waller as, as well. Don't forget that. And a very underrated receiver in Hunter Renfro. He's got the pieces. How well does he use them? But this has to be maybe the most chaotic NFL offseason in recent memory. And it's not even the draft. Just wait until training camp gets underway. March has been absolutely crazy in terms of sports news with the MLB ending their lockout, getting into free agency, NFL, March Madness, NHL, NBA. There's so much stuff going on, but we got to condense some smaller headlines. It's time once again for Quick Hits. Now in the MLB, They've got just as much noise in their free agency pool as the NFL and arguably the top target on the free agency board finally made his decision. And that's Carlos Carrera, Correa, excuse me. Carlos Correa, I think made a very surprising decision about his immediate future. He signs with the twins, the Minnesota twins for three years and $105 million with opt-outs after year one and year two. Very interesting that he decides to go short-term instead of long-term. I don't know if he thinks he's on sort of a prove-it kind of year. I don't know if that's the case, but just looking at Minnesota last year, you know, you got to remember the previous two years, they had won the AL Central. They won the division, but then last year in 2021, 73 and 89, and finished last in the AL Central. But you got to keep in mind, they dealt with a lot of injuries and a lot of shuffling in the lineup. Not a lot of uh, time for Miguel Sano, and just everyone had uh, some really down years. I do like the retooling that they've been doing in the offseason. Not only do you add Correa, but you get Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela uh, from a trade with the Yankees. You put them in the lineup with Miguel Sano, Byron Buxton, Jorge Polanco, Max Kepler. You boost the power in that lineup. I mean, this was a team, even with that record, we're fifth in the league in home runs last year. So I think this offense is going to get back to what we knew for a couple of years. Uh, The question mark, though, for, you know, taking that extra step is the pitching. Is the pitching. They were 26th in team ERA, but they did get Dylan Bundy and Sonny Gray 
this offseason. So I think Minnesota is going to bounce back. And at least now with the expanded playoffs, they're going to challenge for that wild card spot. And on Houston's side, that's a big bat to replace. You know, it's hard to see anyone replacing a shortstop the caliber of Carlos Correa. But sticking in the MLB, we got another big bat off the market, and that's Nick Castellanos. The uh, slugger just signed with the Phillies. Five years, $100 million. And honestly, I talked about the Phillies last week, about how sneaky good they've had an offseason. This lineup just gets better and better. I mean, you've got the reigning NL MVP in Bryce Harper, with all of his previous weapons, now you add Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos. It's going to be interesting, though, defensively, how they're going to incorporate these two guys. Because, again, the universal DH, you think these two guys would be automatic fits right then and there. But you're going to have to put one of them in the field. And looking at the numbers, they're not good defensive players. I mean, when you look at Castellanos, he had a minus 1.4 defensive war, wins above replacement. And Kyle Schwarber last year had a minus 0.8. So I don't know how uh, the Phillies are going to be able to work that out defensively uh, with those two, because you have to put one of them in the field. Maybe Kyle Schwarber uh, moves to uh, first base, or maybe he goes back into the outfield. Not 100% sure, but... Again, I could easily see Philly uh, getting to at least a wild card spot because this was a team, you know, they had probably three good months. Three good months. Everything else was really, really bad. Um, and now with the expanded playoffs, you think, you know, last year, if there were expanded playoffs, this team would have gotten in. So I think Philadelphia finds themselves back in, back into the playoffs with the moves in the offseason that they've made. Sticking with moves and trades, we got to talk about the NHL trade deadline. It has come and gone. They had, There were some moves, but there weren't really big blockbuster moves. I think some of the ones you got to talk about are Marc-Andre Fleury. Going back to a winning team, he gets traded from the Blackhawks to the Minnesota Wild. I really want to see what the Wild are going to do, uh, how Coach Dean Evason is going to handle the playing time because Cam Talbot, you know, he has been, he's been struggling a little bit, but he's still 25, 12 and one with a 2.84 goals against average on the year. So how they balance the time between Flurry and Talbot remains to be seen. But then you've also got a, the veteran presence of Claude Giroux, the longtime flyer now gets a chance at the Stanley cup with the Florida Panthers. I think the Panthers have themselves, you know, they're challenging Tampa. They're challenging everyone uh, in the East, Carolina. I think this is a good move for the Panthers to uh, pick up a veteran presence like Claude Giroux. But of course, you got to talk about the Avalanche, just adding more pieces to a stacked lineup. Okay, this was a team that already had four players in the top 20 in points scored this season in the NHL. You had Miko Rotanen, you had Kadri, both with 75, Makar had 71, and Nate McKinnon with 68 and their whole roster has 12 players with at least 20 points on the year and now the top offense in the nhl just has to shore up that defense and they did it getting john manton from defense and then picking up arturi lekanen and andrew cogli cogliano i think avalanche are just separating themselves more and more with the moves they had made. And it would be very surprising to see him get bounced early on in the Stanley Cup playoffs. 
Outside of sports, the city of New York is expected to lift the vaccine mandate today, meaning all unvaccinated players who play in New York, this includes the Nets, the Knicks, the Mets, and the Yankees, can now play at home. And not only is this big for the Yankees, I think the biggest athlete has to be Kyrie Irving. He gets to be a full-time player, and it's at the most important time right now. I mean, he did score 43 last night against uh, the Memphis Grizzlies, but they still lost that game. Where you And when you look at where the standings are right now for Brooklyn, all signs are pointing to them at least being in the play-in spot right now. But you look at the position where they are right now in the conference. They're still chasing Toronto, and they're only a few games up on Charlotte and Atlanta. So every game is crucial. And if you have uh, someone like Kyrie Irving still on the floor, that's big, absolutely big. Because the the way the standings are set, if it, if the season were to end right now, it would be Brooklyn traveling to Toronto. And Canada ain't anywhere close with lifting their vaccine mandates, which means Kyrie's not going to play. So you want to hope and pray that you stay at least eighth. Because if you have to go to Canada without Kyrie Irving and beat the Raptors, who have been playing better and better, or you have to go to Cleveland, you know, that, that would be the one thing, the two things that the Nets are really looking for right now. They either need to uh, get up to that seventh spot or hope Toronto leapfrogs Cleveland. Because right now, Kyrie Irving ain't playing in Canada. And obviously, it has been just a headache and a nightmare to dissect all of these Nets things between Ben Simmons and Kyrie Irving. But at least there's some kind of clarity knowing that Kyrie Irving is back to being a full-time player. And lastly, a stunning retirement earlier on in the week. The world number one in women's tennis, Ash Barty, has retired from tennis at 25 years old. 25, that's so young. And it was only two months after her third career Grand Slam win at the Australian Open. She had also won the Wimbledon the last time they played. I mean, I just can't believe, you know, I was very surprised to see at the top of her game the top of her game she retires she's been number one for the last 114 weeks that's over two years that she's been number one in the world of women's tennis now i'm not gonna say you know this is totally you know shut the door lock it up and throw away the key because she did step away uh because of burnout for two years back in 2014 so the door is still open for her to return but just you know listening to you know, the reasons and the explanations that she gave, you know, just um, burnout, she's content, happy, satisfied. So I'm not going to be the one to try and, you know, throw out a lasso and try and pull her back into the game. I'm not going to do that. But if she's content, I'm not going to argue with it. But in terms of women's tennis, with no Barty and Serena Williams near the end of her career, it's anyone's guess who's going to be, you know, maybe the next big star. You know, maybe Naomi Osaka gets back to the top of the rankings. Maybe Coco Goff steps up as the American. Maybe the veteran Victoria Azarenka can possibly rise up and get uh, herself back to number one. It's anyone's guess what will happen in women's tennis. But I do salute Ash Barty for an unexpected retirement at a young age, but a great career nonetheless. And that, folks, 
wraps up this week's edition of Quick Hits. Once again, time to get into the city and look at our Boston teams. It's time for our Let's Get Local segment of the week. And we start off the field, off the ice, with a couple of free agency moves, some trades. And we start with the Red Sox making a big splash in free agency with Trevor Story. One of the top five, I would say, top five free agents on the market when free agency started. Signs with the Red Sox. Six years, $140 million. Now, just listening to him in the introductory uh, press conference, um, he really talks about winning. He wants to win, and he got more money from Colorado, but he said himself that he wants to win, and that's what I like. That's what I like. They're looking for uh, winning, you know, maybe not necessarily ring chasing, you know, stuff like that, or teaming up, but... I do like hearing, you know, Trevor Story is just the ultimate competitor, ultimate competitor. And obviously the big talk was around, you know, Story, Xander Bogarts, they're both shortstops, but we know that Story is going to be playing second base. Uh, He's going to move from shortstop. Bogarts is going to be at short and Devers is going to be at third. And what I do think possibly look out for this later on in the year is that it does offer some flexibility where you could have, you could maybe put Story at shortstop move Rafael Devers to first base and Xander Bogarts to third base, or you could uh, leave Devers at third. You know, it just, it makes you wonder a lot about Xander Bogarts because he is in the final year of his contract. I think the Red Sox do find a way to keep him on. I I think they do. He's going to be a lifetime Red Sox. That's what I think. Um, And it's, it was kind of, it's shocking to me to see uh, Heim Bloom make this kind of move because we've seen, uh, from his time as general manager of the Red Sox is he's been, you know, looking at the farm system. He's trying to get under uh, luxury tax and all that stuff. But to see him make this kind of move to go after Trevor story kind of caught me off guard to see what's going on with that. But it's good to see story on the Red Sox. You now have got a lot of right-handed hitters. Okay. You've got a lot of power from, the right side of the plate. And of course it makes up for uh, the offensive power you lost in Kyle Schwarber. Now you've got Bogarts on that right side. Uh, Martinez, you put in story there. You could throw in a Christian Vasquez as well, if you wanted to throw him in that category. But the, the thing I see with this lineup though, is there's not a ton of pop from the left side of the plate is when you're looking at the roster right now, the only hitters who are lefties, right now <clears throat> are Rafael Devers, Alex Verdugo, Jaron Duran, and Brad, uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. Those are the only guys you have that can hit lefty right now. And honestly, you can only really trust Devers and Verdugo. I don't, I don't know. We don't know until we see it with Jaron Duran. And obviously, Jackie Bradley Jr. has absolutely sucked in terms of offensive production. I just, I don't that's the only thing that would concern me is when you go so deep into analytics and stuff like that, you know, that other teams are going to, you know, stack the deck against you. You know, that, you know, if you put out a left-handed hitter, you've got mostly right-handed guys. So 
it'll be interesting to see later on in the year, you know, how teams are going to attack it in that kind of way when it gets down to the playoff chase. Cause ultimately, you know, before the Trevor story move, I thought this team is going absolutely nowhere. As I said, last week, they're going nowhere. They're not going to get anywhere close to that spot. I do think um, now they're back to that sort of wild card contender status. And plus with the division so tight with uh, Toronto, Tampa, and New York, I think this keeps them in the loop and at least makes them contenders, you know, not championship contenders, but just playoff contenders, you know, just seeing what this team has been able to do. And there, there could be some farm guys, some guys in the triple a or in double a that might be rising to the ranks and be better than everyone thought, you know, we don't know that, but I think for now, Red Sox nation is enjoying the pickup that Heimblum, the Red Sox made picking up Trevor story and, the, the kind of pull hitter he is with the power that he has. All he's got to do is get it up high enough over the green monster, and that thing will leave the ballpark. So if you're driving on the mass bike on 495, be careful during baseball season when you see the Red Sox plays. There could be a lot of baseballs coming your way. But as I said, we're sticking with um, moves off the field and off the ice in particular. Let's talk about what the Bruins did at the trade deadline. They made a lot of headlines with some moves and some non-moves. I think, obviously, you got to talk about the big trades that they had. First, you get a smaller trade, getting defenseman John Brown from the Senators. But, of course, the big one came in the Anaheim trade. You get Hampus Lindholm and Cody Curran from Anaheim. You give up John Moore, Uro Vakanainen, and a couple of picks. And afterwards, Lindholm was able to sign an eight-year, $52 million contract shortly after the trade. Now, in my eyes, this is one of the areas that Boston really needed was depth at the defense spot, and they've got maybe one of the better defenders in the league. I think they get stronger and tougher at the blue line with Lindholm now in the lineup. Not only that, but similar to what Bruce Cassidy was able to do with the forwards, you know, breaking up the perfection line. You can move around the defensive pairings. You can put Lindholm with, uh, Charlie McAvoy or Brandon Carlo or Mike Riley. You can bounce him back and forth from the first and second line, maybe even throw him on the third line from time to time. So I thought that was a big move by the Bruins to pick up such a strong defender because that's where they were really lacking. They were just relying too much on Charlie McAvoy and Brandon Carlo and Mac Grizzlick, just those uh, guys. Now you have flexibility, flexibility and depth. It was huge for Boston, that's exactly what they needed. They needed to get stronger and tougher at the blue line, and that's what they did, picking up Lindholm. Now, Vakanainen has played great. He's he's played he's played good for the Bruins uh, this year so far. But you know, for a guy that young, you still got Lindholm. He's still you know late twenties, early thirties. There's still plenty of time for him. And you also you know maybe get a nice transition. You know, if Patrice Bergeron decides to walk away or if he decides to retire or all your veteran players decide or not decide, but you decide that, you know, it's time to move on and get a new one. Lindholm is a good glue guy to have around for a really long time. So just watch what Lindholm does on the ice uh, in the first game tonight, actually going to take on Tampa. So this will be huge to see how the uh, new players are able to uh, incorporate themselves. But as I said, they also made headlines with the non moves, Jake DeBrusque does not get dealt. He even signs an extension 
with the Bruins, a two-year, $8 million extension. Now, I did say for the Bruins to have success, Jake DeBrusque would have to stay with Boston. And, you know, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors. We don't know if there's been talk, you know, if Jake DeBrusque has changed his mind publicly, he has not revoked uh, his trade request. But I think now that he's on the first line and he's got this clarity, as he said, you know, not knowing, is he going to be traded? Is he not going to be traded? You know, he's just been professional throughout this whole thing. He's going to be a huge factor now into the postseason. Now that we know that DeBrusque is going to continue to have his role, he's still going to be on that first line, still get the ice time. I think it's going to be huge for a postseason run for this Bruins team. Now, this doesn't mean that when you get to the offseason that he's not going to be dealt. You know, it just means there's going to be a bigger price to pay for anyone who wants to trade for him. I don't – it's hard to say, you know, if DeBrusque would have an opportunity, if he would say, you know, I, I am going to revoke, I actually do like it here. It's hard to say if he still thinks that way. We have no idea about that. But I think from a Bruins – management and a fan's perspective you know how important this guy is to your success and just looking at the standings really quick you're only one point behind tampa bay if you are able to win this game against tampa tonight you get into the top three in the atlantic division you're out of the wild card picture and that would be huge huge for this bruins team so i think the the moves that they made and the non-moves as i mentioned with debrusque I think it's huge. You give uh, uh, in the goaltending spot, Allmark and Swayman, you get a good team in front of them. You beef up on defense and you continue to have your strong offensive players really uh, for a good two to three lines. So I like what the Bruins did. You know, they didn't make the big splash, but they made a good move. I like what they did. And we'll just see if that translates to success within the last couple of weeks of the regular season. But speaking of the last weeks of the regular season, the Celtics continue to climb up the standings. Another strong week of performances. Uh, they are now 27 and nine in the year 2022 since the calendar year. I mean, wow. Absolutely wow to see this team turn around. They've won nine of their last 10. They're 22 and four in their last 26 games. And just looking at the standings real quick, they're only a game and a half behind the Miami Heat. And of course, the headline for the Heat was the little uh, riff that they had in the bench uh, from the loss to the uh, Warriors. But the first seed is still up for grabs. I think when you look at where the seeding is right now, you want to be anywhere but number two. I think you want to be anywhere but number two because, you know, just looking at it real quick, you know, everyone's expecting, oh, Brooklyn is going to win against Toronto. We don't know that for sure. But if you have to play Brooklyn in the first round, that is not, <laughs> it's, it's not a good sign. I mean, there's still, I think, maybe three or four weeks left. I'd say three weeks left of the regular season. And Brooklyn, just looking real quick, is two and a half back of uh, Toronto right now for that seventh spot. So if they win right now, they'd play Philly in that second round. But I think this is a team that should gun for that number one spot. And I think um, they're, they're, uh, they've been playing great. They're, they're playing championship level basketball. I don't think they're a championship level team, at least not yet, because they still got 
They still got a stretch of games where I really am curious to see how they play. And I'm talking like these teams in the East. They've still got a game against Milwaukee. They've got a game against Miami. I want to see what they do against those teams. I mean, the, the performance that they had last night against Utah, where they basically were shooting the lights out in the first half and had a 30-point lead on them at one point. I mean, come on. They've won five straight, and the margin of victory has been about, I want to say, maybe 20 points or so. You've beaten the Warriors, the Nuggets, the Thunder, the Jazz, and the Kings in convincing fashion, I would add. Convincing fashion. So I think this is a team, you know, I just want to see what they do in the last stretch of games. And heading into the postseason is where I want to see, you know, how well they do. Because now they get a little bit of rest, and then they're going to play against Minnesota at the Garden on Sunday. Then they travel to Toronto. They host Miami. But, again, you wrap up the season, you know, uh, next Wednesday, April 6th, Chicago, Milwaukee, Memphis is your final three games. I want to see what they do against those top East teams. I want to see how they play against Milwaukee. I want to see how well they play against Miami. Are they going to be dominant wins or are they going to be, you know, grinded out games? Um, I just want to see how they do six of their final eight games are against teams that are over 500 right now. So I want to see how they do against, you know, playoff caliber teams. Because we're seeing it in the West. They're not going to be playing anyone in the West, you know, unless they get to the NBA Finals. I want to see how they do against teams in the East. We've seen they can beat Philly. We've seen they can beat Brooklyn. We've seen they can beat uh, Cleveland. They've beaten Charlotte. They've beaten Atlanta. You know, how do they stack up against the rest of the East? But I think on the court, everyone in the rotation knows their role to perfection. You've got Derek White, who's basically the leader of that bench unit. You've got Grant Williams, who's coming along as a strong two-way player, which, by the way, the Batman, I don't think it's a really good uh, nickname for him. But I want to talk about Peyton Pritchard. Pritchard is coming along as a reliable source of offense off the bench. Not only is he shooting, but his ability to drive to the basket and find the open guy. I think, you know, that's why the Celtics drafted him a couple of years ago was because of his shooting and just his offense. And I think he's just getting more and more confident the more minutes he gets from Coach Udoka. And not only that, but he's just stepping up defensively. This whole team is stepping up defensively. I mean, if they've been able to slow down Nikola Jokic, they can stifle anyone. So I'll make a full assumption on their title hopes, you know, at the end of the regular season. I just want to see they've still got some big games to end the regular season. I want to see how they perform in that, if they maybe maxed out, or if teams have kind of figured it out. So we'll see what the Celtics can do. But for now, let's just enjoy the success that they've had recently. But something to not really enjoy right now has been the Patriots, their ability, I shouldn't say ability, their uh, willingness to uh, go out and spend in free agency. They're, at least in my eyes, they're confusing me with some of the moves they're making. I mean, Jawan Bentley, Trent Browns re-signed for two years each. I think that's fine, but... The big move is Malcolm Butler. I'm not sure about this move here. Why are you bringing back a guy who basically hasn't played competitive football in over a year, at one point was retired, and you're giving $9 million over two years to someone where there might be some friction between head coach and player? Because if you remember the last image 
we have of Malcolm Butler in a Patriots uniform is him on the sidelines during Super Bowl 52, where everyone is saying if he had played in the game, you would have beaten the Eagles. You would have been able to shut down Philly and not let them score 41 points. Okay. I just don't get it. Like that's your replacement to JC Jackson is just a familiar face and Malcolm Butler. So you're telling me your top two cornerbacks are Malcolm Butler. You're putting Malcolm Butler on just thinking of the receivers. You're putting Malcolm Butler on Stephon Dix. You're putting him on Tyreek Hill, on Jalen Waddell. You're putting him on all these guys. Listen, he was never any better when he left New England to start with. So that was probably in Butler's eyes thinking, huh, my success came with New England. Let me go back there and hope I can go back to success. I just don't see it. I don't understand what Belichick is doing. And maybe we'll get, you know, a a better explanation as to why Malcolm Butler was benched in the Super Bowl and uh, why he didn't play in that game. Maybe, you know, he'll clear that up when we get started with training camp. But I'm just, I don't know what Belichick is doing. I still don't know what he's doing, bringing in, you know, old, slow guys, you know, familiar faces. This is, it's what he's done. But now (laughs) when you don't have, you know, a guy like Tom Brady to bail you out, you actually get to look at this stuff and think, how is this team getting any better? How is this team getting any better? Because they've drafted, they've gotten no wide receivers, even though that is maybe a number one, number two need for this Patriots team. You know, maybe they're holding out for the draft, you know, for an absolutely stacked class. And you're not really getting any better defensively. You haven't signed anybody. And we're hearing reports that they just don't want to spend the money. They're competitive, but they don't want to spend the money. Or I think it's they won't spend the money. They spent it all last year on a bunch of guys. You know, I just don't, I don't know what Belichick and this organization is doing to try and make this team better. Because look around the AFC, look around. The team in your own division, Miami, just got probably five times better. Cleveland, who missed the playoffs, got better. Denver got better, and they missed. Indy, Vegas, Chargers. You have probably a dozen teams right now in the NFL who, in the AFC, who all think they are A, playoff teams, and B, Super Bowl contenders. I mean, and what are you doing? Just sitting on the sidelines, you know, eating chips or something, watching all the moves get made. What is Belichick doing? I really just want a clear-cut answer onto what his uh, strategy is. What is his mindset? I mean, maybe we'll just get some answers once uh, training camp starts and we hit the draft. But again, Boston looks for success. And so far, we've seen a lot of success from our teams. We'll see if that carries over as we head into spring. show as we always do we get our lol moment of the week and before we get into this week's moment i encourage everyone check out instagram our instagram page at let me speak underscore official go vote on the ultimate lol moment bracketology okay we're right now we're in we're about to lock up everyone in the sweet 16 we just released our region four matchups from the round of 32 so the next couple of days will be Sweet 16 matchups. Keep an eye out for that. 
But let's talk about this week's moment. Not only was there March Madness on the court with all these athletes and coaches, but it was even some people off the court who got a little bit into the March Madness. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to... Cassidy Cerny and Nathan Paris. These are two Indiana cheerleaders. So if you haven't seen the video, it was a disastrous situation during Indiana and St. Mary's during the round of 64. The ball was stuck. The basketball was stuck uh, in that little uh, frame where the shot clock meets the backboard. So it was stuck and no one could get it. You know, they tried everything. They tried standing on a chair and getting a broom. Uh, to dislodge it but then here comes Cassidy Cerny Nathan Paris they come to the rescue uh, Nathan puts Cassidy on his shoulder she goes up grabs the ball and is able to let uh, game resume so it was a disastrous situation but these two cheerleaders were able to save it and for those that didn't see it not only is the moment great but the announcer call from announcer Andrew Catalan is pretty incredible. Take a look at this. Major issues here in Portland. Why don't we get a new ball? Yeah. Why, why don't the cheerleaders, <laughs> they're used to going up high. Let's get a, the, yes, get the cheerleader up. Get her up there. This is how you do it. <laughs> Give her the mob. Now she's got it. <laughs> shining moments i mean he goes all out this was literally like it was like there was a buzzer beater like when uh villanova had that buzzer beater for the national championship and jim nance went absolutely crazy he went absolutely nuts for those cheerleaders cassie cerny and nathan paris but what was funny enough after the moment you know when you hear about uh when they when they did interviews not only for like tmz and good morning america they said they were prepared for that moment. <laughs> you listen to them. They said, you know, it would be funny enough if a situation like that happened. And sure enough, you saw all the players and the referee even uh, looked at them saying like, hey, let's 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 try it out. Let's try it out. And sure enough, here they come. They were like, I guess it's our moment. And as Andrew Catalan said, it was their one shining moment. And that's it's been the ultimate LOL for this whole March Madness. Everything crazy has happened. That might have been the craziest moment. But what's great about this moment is that everyone has been through this situation. I know I've been through it multiple times growing up where a ball gets stuck. Now, if you have like a backboard, if you have a hoop like in your driver or something, it hasn't, you know, maybe gotten stuck at the top, but it's gotten like it's been wedged in between the rim and the backboard. And you've had this problem so many times where you try to get a broom or you get another ball to try and dislodge it, you know, where you throw it up and try to knock it loose. Everyone's been in this situation. And I think that's what makes this moment great is it's so relatable. It is relatable to see uh, this kind of moment happen because everyone has been through this situation at least once where you have a ball stuck and you have no way of getting it. And so you go to the, most unique situations in this case it's two cheerleaders stack them up on each other and retrieve the ball so who would who would have known if that wasn't been able to happen we could have been talking about you know indiana and saint mary's possibly uh doing an overtime 
um, <laughs> later on in that in that game. But uh, Cassidy Cerny, Nathan Paris for saving the day, saving the game between Indiana and St. Mary's, and maybe the most unique way of getting a ball that was stuck in the top of the backboard has landed both of you into this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. Make sure, as always, you are following our social media pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point you got to get across, just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.